listening to Adventure Rider Radio. This is Dr. Gregory W. Frazier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Adventure. An unusual and exciting, typically hazardous experience or activity. But the dictionary evolves with our use of the language. The real question is, how do you define adventure? I remember when I first questioned the word adventure and what it meant to different people. I was standing about waist deep in muddy water, trying to push a vehicle out that we had gotten stuck on a multi-day vehicle test for a magazine. On that trip, things did not go according to plan. But to me, a plan was nothing more than an idea of how something could happen, with little regard to the random things that are thrown into each day for us. Besides, that was it. It was the challenge. The challenge that went overcome as the seed for a great story. But when I looked around that day, I realized that I was the only one having fun. And I thought, I don't get it. I thought this was what adventure was all about. Today on Adventure Rider, we tackle the word adventure. Is it adversity? Discovery? Exploration? How do you define adventure? Stay with us to find out how an elastic band can keep your wallet safe and why you need to pay special attention when you park your motorcycle in a foreign country. I'm Jim Martin, and this is Adventure Rider Radio. I'm Dave Barr. I'm, um, I do uh, inspirational speaking. I like to say inspiration because it's a long-term deal rather than motivation, which is just a spark. I just come back from South Africa leading a, a nationwide rally of 4,300 miles for the Leonard Cheshire Foundation. I do uh, things of that sort. I'm a father of two. I live in a very small town called Bodfish in California, east of Bakersfield, about 50 miles, up in the Paiute Mountains. Dave Barr is an extraordinary man. He's ridden six continents and racked up 83,000 miles on a 1972 Harley-Davidson. And all of this with two prosthetic legs. So when we started working on defining adventure, well, Dave Barr knows a thing or two about adventure. So I read the dictionary's definition to Dave and asked him what he thought. Of course, in the dictionary, they call it an, an unusual and exciting and typically hazardous experience or activity. Um, how do you define adventure? Well, actually, that's very good. And you had in your email about, you know, difficult. Uh, yeah, it's definitely, it's not easy. It, you know, it can be quite painful. It's total uncertainty about, you know, what's going to happen from the time you get up in the morning or in fact, sometimes even just sleeping at night, depending on where you're at. And uh, it's also exploration. It's all of the above. Absolutely. It depends on what you call an adventure. You could call, you know, going on a cruise ship an adventure. But, um, you know, if you want high adventure as, you know, interpreted by people like myself, I mean, it's all of the above. It's going to be really difficult. But it could also be opulence. I mean, if you know anything about my book, you know, I mean, there's days I, I walk in the company of kings. Then the very next day, we sleeping out in the rain. It it's all it has to do with extremes and uh, just adversity, uh, exploration, absolutely. As you travel forward, you're going into uncharted uh, waters for yourself every day. So is it misadventure that makes the trip? Well, misadventure can also be part of it. I mean, I was in a place called Boa Vista on the Trans-Amazon which is just at the time was about 800 miles worth of just mud and horrible road. 
you know, and dirt and, and dust and, and muddy and rainy, you know, going down across the equator. And I went into a town called Voa Vista, and I, it was cloudy, so I couldn't get any sun direction, you know, for south, north, east, west. And I kept going, Manaus, the direction Manaus. And I would point down the road, yeah, TC, Manaus. Well, I ended up in Ghana, you know, uh, which was 80 miles down a worse mud road than I was on. And there were flat tires and just everything to make the trip more wonderful. So there's misadventures in there, too. You know, breakdowns in the middle of nowhere. You know, I up in the Namib Desert, you know, I, my carburetor stuck it, the seal in the carburetor came back, and I started sucking air in the front cylinder, which you could burn up a valve real easy in a Harley Davidson, an older Harley Davidson that way. You know, I just had to sit down in, you know, 115, 118 degree heat and put a, a tarp over the top of me and go to work on it you know, and fix it. Uh, I've had, you know, the motor just quit and flat tires, 26 flat tires, among other things. You know, and uh, and I you just get through it. It's part of the adventure. If it was easy, it wouldn't be an adventure. Isn't it the misadventure or those things that go wrong that really make the best stories? Oh, certainly. Yeah, adversity, uh, you know, the adversity part of it. A lot of times you have people living your adventure intrinsically. They would never go out and do the same thing that that I'm doing or someone like uh, Dr. Fraser or uh, with a lot of people that are world travelers especially us single world travelers and the people who go on their own and with no backup of any, of any kind. And, um, yeah, and they're living it through you. And it's, yeah, it's the misadventures, uh, accidents. Yeah, I've broken ribs, crushed two vertebrae uh, at the same time in, in one week at two different accidents. Uh, I've cracked my pelvis on another accident and broke ribs on the same one. And you just keep going. That's all part of the adventure. If it was easy, we wouldn't do it. Dave, no one knows more about pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, I think, than you. You've got to be one of the, those very few experts in that field. But do you think it's, it's that pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone that makes our adventure a memorable experience? Sure, it does. And uh, absolutely, Jim. Also, you know, that's part of my platform as a speaker is to not be in a comfort zone. You're in a comfort zone. You're, you're not doing what you're put on this world to do. You're just coasting. But when you're out of your comfort zone, you're operating at capacity. It's more the way that the human uh, experience comes enlightened with life itself is by pushing out of the comfort zone, certainly, absolutely. Dave, how often does a trip go as planned? Never. It has never happened. You don't go out with any expectations. You plan, but then you go out and you roll with the waves. Is there a certain mentality required for adventure? Well, it's a certain mentality you had to need to get through adventure. Here you can't be a pansy. How long do you have to be out, or how far do you have to go before it's considered a real adventure? Oh, gosh, that's a good one. You know, that's that's own personal, you know, interpretation. Some people would call riding the freeways in Los Angeles an adventure because it's, it is less than safe. And um, that would be a personal call on that. You know, my, I set out to do something on a route that had never been done before, and I don't think it's ever been duplicated. I, I don't believe so, just because I got permission to get into a lot of places that the normal traveler couldn't do. That's where my disability and also my military background came into, really into, into play. Many times it's the adversity in our adventure that makes the greatest stories. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, let's give you an example. When I was going into Sao Paulo, the engine went bad on the shovel. And I managed uh, through a contact through the Leonard Cheshire Foundation, which is all over the world, 
to get the motorcycle the rest of the way down to Sao Paulo and, and into the garage of the police militar. All right, now they had a whole Aladdin's cave of parts for old Harley Davidson shovelheads. Because their presidential escort team rode shovelheads. And, um, and I spent the next six weeks working there. Well, the Leonard Cheshire Foundation took advantage of that. I spoke to cultural groups. I spoke to newspapers, radio interviews. Even Marie Claire did a photo shoot and an interview with me. They was just, you know, one thing after another. And I, I, uh, the home received a lot of money. The Cheshire home there, which was really suffering financially, received a lot of money and also expertise in different areas. And a lot of good came from it just because I was slowed down. Had I come there, I'd have done a couple of newspaper articles in a couple of days in Sao Paulo, and I would have been heading south because I was heading into the fall, and my target area was Tierra del Fuego or Bahia Lapataya at the bottom tip of South America. As it was, it turned in that I was there six weeks, and when I did leave, a lot of good came to the home because of that. But when I did leave, I was right in the middle of winter in the southern hemisphere. And I was down in Tierra del Fuego on ice roads and all the way to the bottom, right? And that's the other misadventure, but, uh, you know, it turned out okay. And I, um, I managed to, uh, you know, to survive it all and just made, a, made for a better story. Misadventure, I had another one. I was down in a mud rut in Zaire, and um, that turned into a funny story. I was in a mud rut, and I was getting through this rut. They can be up to 100, 100 meters long, but they got a berm in the middle with a, a five-ton truck's tires, you know, push the mud up. And they're depth of a five-ton truck's axle on one side and sometimes even higher on the outside. And I was getting through this thing, and I was feeling pretty good with myself. And so generally, I'm going to get turfed off the motorcycle once or twice. And I was getting through it, and all of a sudden, I got my left leg sandwiched between the mud wall and the, and the motorcycle, and it ripped the leg off. Well, I just let go of the handlebars and, and rolled off the motorcycle, and, you know, uh, because, God forbid, I put the bone to the bottom of the stump. I, I, there's, no, there's no such thing as, you know, an EMT or 911 out here. You're on your own. And uh, this, this country is about as far removed from reality than anything in this world I've ever seen. And, um, you know, I rolled off the motorcycle. The motorcycle was up on the mud wall and just kind of sitting there, and there were two African fellows coming down the other side of the rut, and they saw that the leg laying behind me about 10 yards. And uh, they're going, ah, you know, they, they're thinking that, you know, that my leg had been torn off. And they're just, yeah. Anyway, I scooted back through the mud. I needed a laugh. And I got the leg, and I put it on, and I stood up. And that was too much for these characters. Eyes like a shot out of their heads. And, yeah, they started running off of the jungle, screaming with their arms waving in the air, just going nuts. Well, I got the motorcycle upright and got the hell out of there before they can come back with knob curries and acid guys and see what this white devil was all about. Dave, a lot of adventurers, like yourself, have visited the far corners of our Earth and documented it through writing, through movies and photographs, and let the rest of us, who may not ever get there, see what it's really like. Is there still adventure to be found? It's still an adventure to go into a foreign country on a motorcycle and see the way they drive and find out the, the method to their madness, to, you know, the roads, the situations, you know, living out. I mean, I, I did everything in mainland China. I was there seven months. What an adventure that became. It started with media in Shenzhen, just right across the border. Then they sent me to Fuzhou, and I went to Fuzhou, and that, you know, and then more media. And they would put me up in nice hotels. The whole trip was one adventure after another. I had my fortune told something would break on the motorcycle, and then the motor would uh, start trouble. Well, 
I had problems crossing the Murmansk line, which is the Arctic Circle, headed for Murmansk, the most northern city in the world. And a guy, I stopped, I was photographing, and he stopped behind me, and I hadn't seen any petrol stations for 200 miles. And I did have some fuel in the back, but it was gone. I carried three and a half gallons at that time. So he had fuel, and, and he got me fueled up. And we leapfrogged each other all the way up to Murmansk. And then he says, you come and stay with me. And then, well, the fellow told, told my fortune, said something's going to break here. And he showed the Murmansk area. But he showed an area that was west of Murmansk on the, on the western side of the, the Kola Inlet. And um, so the kickstand broke. And this fellow said, oh, well, well, I said, well, where's your home? He says, Murmansk. I said, but Murmansk, Kagdag, it's over there. But the road wasn't on the map. And anyway, we rode another 35 or so miles on a paved road and come over a hill, and there was conning towers coming up out of the water in Rivetmouth. And I realized this was the nuclear submarine base in the Arctic. And, uh, and this is a very restricted area. A sign said Murmansk 60. Anyway, we went to a lockup. We welded it, and just about the time we were shutting the motorcycle down, the, the, a condenser fried up. Well, I fixed that, and the misadventure turned into an adventure. I spent a night on the nuclear submarine base in the Arctic, you know, and uh, the next morning I was, you know, they fooled me up and saw me off and, you know, down the road towards the border and, uh, and Norway. A lot of your activities while you're traveling have had to do with charitable organizations. Do you think that should be a part of our adventures as we head off to these places where they may not be as fortunate as us? Well, for me, yeah, I mean, I had that agenda. A lot of times for people just go out, they're just out there just having an adventure and traveling the world, seeing it, exploring, as you put it before. And that was Dave Barr. You can find out more about Dave by visiting www.davebarr.com, and that link will be in our show notes as well. Coming up, we're going to give you off-road riding tips right from the experts that you're going to need on your next adventure. But first, we're going to talk to Dr. Greg Frazier, who knows a thing or two about adventure travel. Five times around the globe by motorcycle, working on his sixth, multiple books and DVDs, endless articles and writings. Dr. Greg Frazier knows a thing or two about adventure. So when we started working on the adventure show... We knew we had to talk to Dr. Frazier. We managed to get him off the motorcycle for a short talk on the phone. Actually, I'm not even sure he was off the motorcycle. Adventure has been described as uh, an unusual and exciting, uh, typically hazardous uh, experience or activity, and that's read uh, out of the dictionary. Um, how do you define adventure? <laughs> good, good question. 25 years ago, when I adopted my uh, title as professional motorcycle adventurer and editor for a BMW magazine called uh, On the Level, had never heard it before, and he wrote me, he says, what is this adventurer? And I thought I had a pretty good handle on it at the time, Jim. Uh, I knew that adventure, if you look in the dictionary, usually incorporates the term risk. But today I see... Uh, Adventure gardening, adventure shopping, uh, an adventure motel. Uh, it seems the word has morphed into uh, what I would call a rather loosely or a loose definition. I saw an ad from my uh, motorcycle tour company that uh, I got uh, emailed last week, and it said, uh, 
adventure riding is all about getting off the beaten path and exploring the world by motorcycle. They don't have in that definition the word risk. And this is a tour company which uh, offers what I would call, and I've, I've seen it referred to elsewhere, as bubble wrap adventure. They try to take out of um, the journey most, if not all, of the risk to the point where the paying customer has little more to worry about than where to find an ATM machine. Uh, it's got chase vehicles in the front, uh, chase vehicle in the back carrying their luggage, spare motorcycle parts, uh, guides at the border. They have fixers that schmooze the, the paperwork from one country to the other. And you'll see their ads uh, in magazines where you've got the group leader and five or six it may be more than that. Motorcycles following the group leader, who uh, ordinarily is multilingual, like uh, uh, the mother goose and the goslings. So, in today's definition, I'm I'm at a loss. Uh, I look at some of the things that I've done or do that I thought were adventures. I think they're more in the the more extreme. They're uh, they're expeditions. Actually, I have no uh, safety net. Uh, for instance, when I went to uh, Nome, Alaska, uh, I was on my own up there. I think I saw two other, three other motorcycles in the whole 10 days that I was there. Uh, or some of the trips I've taken through Africa or South America, Russia. Um, those were, there was definitely a, a degree of risk, a high degree of risk. So. Uh, back to your initial question, uh, I'm kind of uh, in a quandary. Uh, I still consider myself uh, adventurous, and I still take risks. But uh, I think the, uh, uh, as my one of my colleagues once said, adventure riding is like sex. It all takes place between your ears. Is an adventure really a misadventure that that makes the trip? I mean, is that what adventure really is? Is the um, the side those parts of the trip that we look at that are such a drag at the time, but turn out afterwards to be the the lifeblood of the story? I don't know that you have to have a um, a problem to have an adventure. Yeah, those are memories that you look at, and they were tough at the time. But I think. Uh, yeah, the adventure today is uh, each for each one of us. It's uh, a different uh, scale or uh, envelope. Let's put it that way. What for my buddy uh, who just came back from a uh, trip in the Alps? He'd never been out of the country before, and for him, that was highly risky. For me, uh, that uh, my my meter is a. Uh, got different uh, a different scale so then is pushing ourselves out of the comfort zone is that what makes an adventure out of the individual comfort zone for what one guy would would find as a a extremely risky uh tour a motorcycle trip uh the next person wouldn't find it risky at all it's offhand it would just be a tour so it's your personal comfort zone and it doesn't have to incorporate uh off-road or gravel, at least in my, my definition. Uh, I debate this with uh, a fellow uh, motorcyclist by the name of Dave Barr. And, 
And uh, Dave's been around the world on his Harley. He did 83,000 miles, and he doesn't have any legs. Dave uh, says that if it's going to be an adventure, it's got to incorporate off-pavement. And I disagree with him. I've I've had some uh, great experiences that had a high degree of risk that I was able to manage that didn't incorporate any gravel or tracks or trails. Um, I've had another acquaintance who just formed a a company to promote uh, his Christian beliefs and uh, motorcycling. Uh, He argues that uh, to be an adventure, it's got to be somehow tied into rough camping. So in a way, the adventure is really um, chasing after something that you've sort of described in your head before you've left. Um, that can be the adventure. It doesn't need to have any you know, salt and pepper thrown into it. As long as you're chasing after that, that original plan, that original vision you had, that's the adventure. That's a good definition of it. I'm happy when everything works out. <laughs> it's the, the bumps in the road that I try to ignore or uh, uh, go around. I don't go looking for... Uh, the potholes. Do you find yourself sometimes veering from the path for a little more excitement in your adventure? <laughs> I, I do that often between my office in Denver and my home in Montana. When I'm going up Interstate 25 and I see the gravel road or the two-lane paved highway going parallel, I've been known to vector off of the, the quick trip, the interstate, poke around out in the the wilds of Wyoming or, or Montana where uh, uh, there were no other vehicles. What about adventures that you'd rather not have, maybe that were forced upon you, interactions with the locals that you'd rather not have again? Uh, I've been pickpocketed twice in a million miles. The first time was in um, Cali, Columbia in 2006. It was during a Christmas Day parade, and I had... I had somebody behind me that was holding on to my belt as we went through the crowd, and I thought it was her hand that went into my pocket. I felt the dip, they call it. Um, And uh, on that day, uh, the pickpocket got about $100, a credit card. I don't know, the angel on my shoulder in the morning told me to leave everything in the, the hotel safe, so that's where I left my driver's license and passport and the big wad of, of, of hard cash. Uh, and then the second time I was pickpocketed was uh, in 2012 in uh, Bangkok, Thailand. And in that case, um, the pickpocket got about $100 on a photocopy of my passport. You're required to, to carry your passport at all times, but uh, uh, if you have that locked away in the hotel room uh, or the safe, photocopy will do you until you can get back there and provide it. In both of those cases, my net loss was about $100, just walking around money for the day or night. And I look on those as uh, experiences because I was in risky situations. I was either in a crowd or I was out late at night. And uh, they taught me uh, to, number one, uh, wrap my wallet in a uh, rubber band, uh, which makes the dip much harder for the person to, to get that wallet out of your pocket. The rubber bands catch on the uh, on the on the cloth. 
versus a, a nice slick leather wallet or nylon wallet, which slides out very easily. And the second thing it taught me was uh, uh, don't carry things in your back pocket, which is the easiest place. And the third thing that I learned is these pickpockets, they're professionals. That's their job. And uh, you have to respect the professional who has got a skill that keeps them um, working. I look at the, my two pickpocket experiences as uh, learning curves. I paid a couple of hundred dollars and some inconvenience. So when that happens, do you shrug your shoulders and say, well, ah, whatever? Or do you slap yourself in the forehead and say, oh, man? <laughs> I, I, I slap my forehead and say, you know, I felt the hand in my pocket. Uh, in, the, in the case in Bangkok, there was a, a person on the street as I walked into the 7-Eleven to get some orange juice about midnight. And they, I thought they were approaching me for money, and they came up, and, and I, I waved them off and, and went into the store, and I came back out. And I, the person was still there, and they walked next to me. And let's say they were on the right side of me as we're walking down the street, and I'm trying to walk faster than that person. They just didn't want them around me. They touched my left shoulder with their left hand around my back, which is a standard technique for pickpockets. It, it causes your brain to think of your left shoulder while their right hand goes into your pocket. Uh, and I knew that. I, I should have overridden my brain uh, when I felt the tap on my left shoulder, but I, I blew it off. And, and about 50 meters later, after the, the person had gone off with my $100, I stuck my hand in my pocket. And I said, ah, I knew that. I should have known that. So, uh, uh, learning curves. How about mechanical hiccups that have uh, sort of thrown you for a loop? Real quickly, Alaska, a lot of people like to go up there. I was on a goat trail that ran along a creek, and uh, the, the motorcycle slipped off the goat trail and went into the creek. And I spent the next two days diving in a very cold creek, uh, detaching parts from the motorcycle. Uh, so that I could eventually drag it out from underneath the water. Um, that uh, is not something that happens to somebody every day, and I wouldn't recommend it. So you disassembled the bike in the water to get it out because you're alone. Yeah, it was, un it, it was below the surface of the water, and, and I was alone, and I had to drag it up a bank. So it was, it was two days of cold water diving. And you got it back together, and, and you got away again. Uh, yeah, I got it back together and running, and uh, uh, didn't run well. But uh, and I also had to drag it downstream about fifty yards before I could get it up on the on the bank. Uh, a second time in Alaska, I was uh, up near the back of uh, a McKinley on a, on a gravel road that went through a stream, and on the way through the stream. A salmon hit my front wheel. Uh, I'd seen it out of the corner of my eye working, so the, the stream wasn't that deep. And the salmon just thunked into the front wheel and then took off. I was so surprised uh, that those pieces fell in place, the salmon, the thunk, that I didn't put my foot down, and the motorcycle laid over in the stream and, and gulped some uh, water into the, into the cylinder. So I had to push that over to the bank and... Uh, I spent the next uh, two, probably two hours, uh, draining the uh, uh, carburetor, wringing out the air cleaner, 
um, cleaning out the, the water in the cylinder. Well, there were two or three other bears along the same creek uh, having lunch of the salmon that were running up the stream. Fortunately for me, uh, they weren't very interested in me, and I tried to make as much noise as I could to keep them um, away. But those were just uh, two Alaska instances. In um, Panama, the, uh, I fried the clutch on my BMW in the jungle on a, on a paved highway, and uh, I spent probably uh, the better part of four hours uh, replacing the clutch. Now, in that instance, uh, I was smart enough when I left the United States to take along a used clutch plate. Uh, so I, I had the part. Had I not had the part, I would have had to find a way to get the motorcycle into Panama City and have uh, the clutch either rebuilt, the clutch plate rebuilt, or uh, another one flown in from the States. Uh, but that was a hot, uh, frustrating afternoon. I think it was about 100 degrees, and the humidity was the same. Uh, but uh, before I'd left the, the States, I, I knew that uh, some parts w were not going to be readily available on that motorcycle, and it had a lot of miles on it to start. I didn't uh, think that the clutch would go, but it, it eventually did. In Bogota, Colombia, uh, they woke me up about 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, to come downstairs. Two guys had tried to, to take my BMW uh, away from the front of the hotel where it, I had the fork locked uh, and I also had a chain through the back wheel. They lifted the, the front wheel up and uh, not knowing that there was a chain through the back wheel and rolled it about five or ten feet when the chain locked and they couldn't roll it any further, and I couldn't pick it up because it was too heavy, so they flopped it over on the side. Uh, had I not locked uh, the chain through the wheel, that would have been a goner, I think. Uh, and then in, in Munich, on a, on a happier note, I met some motorcyclists uh, one afternoon in the English Garden, or Englisher Garden, they call it, and they, they wanted to drink beer for the afternoon, and I said, fine, and I took my motorcycle off and into the, the, the surrounding neighborhoods, and I very carefully chained it to a downspout on a house and uh, spent the evening with them and took the train back to my hotel. Next day on Sunday when I came back into town, I couldn't find the motorcycle again. Uh, and I spent the better part of an afternoon trying to remember uh, exactly what street it was that I'd left it chained. There were so many houses that looked the same, and I, I, I didn't uh, remember the names of anything. Uh, that was in my uh, youth. I think that was in 1987. Uh, I don't uh, uh, imbibe uh, as much as I used to, so I don't think the, the situation would be the same again. Did you find the bike, or did you give up? I found it, but it took, it took the better part of an afternoon uh, going back to where I'd spent time with the, the other guys and then trying to remember, okay, where did I go to park that? Uh, the, uh, the park is a, is, is a fairly large uh, downtown park in Munich and uh, a lot of houses around it. I just got twisted around uh, over the evening or maybe just twisted, but eventually uh, 
I was able to find it again. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of stress involved. That bike was about a year old at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a prized possession. I was scammed in Romania rather uh, professionally by a couple of guys that came up to me on the street as I was packing and uh, offered to uh, exchange money at a, a good rate. The government had set the rate in Romania, and uh, these guys were offering a better rate. I was leaving Romania that day, so I only uh, offered to exchange $100. And they were not happy with it, but uh, we did the deal. And as they uh, took my $100 bill, the one guy uh, rolled it very very carefully in a, in a roll. And then two other guys walked up on the street, and the two guys that I was doing the deal with said, Oh, the cops. And it was against the law to, to change money with, other, with anybody other than a government bank or approved agency. So <clears throat> I knew there was a risk involved in getting the higher rate. They... Uh, uh, stood up and uh, uh, in Romanian basically said, "We got to get out of here." And they threw my hundred-dollar rolled-up bill back on the on the pavement, took off. When I picked it up, it wasn't a hundred dollars; it was a dollar. Um, <laughs> you know, you you look at the green and you assume everything's okay, but uh, that taught me a a, a lesson uh, that if the deal is too good to be true, it probably isn't. Now, I know there's a story about you spending some time in jail, and I, I can't help but ask about that one. <laughs> well, in my new book, Down and Out, uh, I tell the story about my buddy and I making the first trip that I had made on a Honda, and I blew it up outside of Hammond, Indiana, blew a hole in the piston. We took it to the Honda shop, and they said it's going to cost X amount of money, which was about all the money we had, so... We left it at the Honda shop. We took our, our pack sacks, which were back then our, our, our panniers or riding uh, luggage, and we set up our tent in the city park. The policeman that was on duty that evening came by and said, you can't camp here, boys. And we said, we don't have any money. And he said, well, you can, you can spend the night in our lovely jail. And I'm not sure if we got arrested and booked uh, for vagrancy. What I do know is we went to the jail, left our pack sacks. They put us in a cell. They took our belts, our shoelaces, so that we wouldn't hang ourselves. And uh, then they proceeded to uh, pick up the hookers off the street that night, which was their monthly collection, I guess. And they filled the cell across from us with uh, the working ladies. And the working ladies saw the two of us, a couple of young Quaker guys, 18, 19 years old, and had a great time that evening uh, trying to get us to be embarrassed. And that included showing us body parts we didn't want to see, throwing uh, underwear across the, uh, uh, the hallway to uh, land in our cell. Um, someday I may go back and find out if uh, we were actually arrested. Well, now that certainly makes a, a good story for telling. Now, uh, I understand that wasn't the only time. Uh, I got uh, hauled off to jail in Honduras when uh, I went through town, small town, and there were two policemen at the end of town uh, that waved me over and uh, wanted to see my papers. And they, uh, the one was watching traffic while the other one was going through my uh, my my tank bag goodies. And I pulled out two cameras, uh, 
And he, he took, he grabbed a hold of one of them and he said, uh, you have two, you only need one. And, uh, I, I pulled back on it, on the strap. Uh, he stumbled and, uh, fell down and his buddy turned around and saw his, his partner laying on the ground and assumed that I'd hit him or pushed him. So his buddy pulled out his gun and uh, pointed it at me. And this is where I made my mistake. I took his gun away from him. And the second mistake was uh, the guy that was laying on the ground fumbled for his holster, which was like a fold over on the top, and got it open and started to pull out his gun. And I pointed the gun that I had at him and waved my finger in a, in a no fashion. All right, so now, now, now I realized those, the light had gone on in my head. Uh, I had uh, pushed my risk envelope too far. They, uh, I, I gave the gun back to them, and they uh, <clears throat> made me drive to the local police station, two of them on a bicycle, one pedaling and the other sitting on the handlebars with a gun pointed at my back while I'm driving my motorcycle very slowly through town. And I spent that night in uh, in their their lovely jail in Honduras. Um, they'd uh, put me in a room that was probably six feet by six feet, and there were about ten of us in the room. Uh, it, there was no sitting; it was standing. And I my Spanish wasn't that good. It was it wasn't a good night. Uh, the next day, the superior came in, and I think the. The tax I paid for going through that town was $260, and uh, I think I was eventually released after being charged with assaulting a police officer. And I like to say it wasn't assaulting him. I never hit him, but I did insult him when I took his gun away from him because of the the hurt to his machismo. Uh, Some guy like me should not be taking guns away from, from police officers. I remember going through Cuba. Uh, I went past a uh, military shooting um, range, and as I drove by, I noticed one guy had separated from the group, and he was leaning his rifle on the fence, following me with his uh, uh, his rifle. <laughs> what am I going to do if he pulls the trigger? Nothing. There's a thing I can do. How far or how long do you have to be out to be considered on an adventure? <laughs> For me, uh, going across town on my 1947 Indian chief is an adventure. I'm never sure if it's going to make it. Are there some adventures that you've had that you'd rather not have again? Uh, I never want to see the Middle East again. I don't want to see the middle of Africa again. And I'm really kind of shy about most places in Central America. South America, I like. Um, the two countries, even though I was pickpocketed in Colombia, uh, the two countries I, I like the most in, in South America are Brazil and uh, Colombia. It, it's not a language barrier. It's just uh, uh, you're kind of identified because you're a, a foreigner and you're on a motorcycle, and probably the motorcycle costs more than 90% of the population's make in a year. So you, you're you waving a flag saying, hey, I've got money. I'm a tourist. I'm traveling through. Somewhere on me, I've got credit cards, traveler's checks, or cash. Um, 
and my uh, uh, my antennas say those are places I don't need to expose myself to that risk again. Oh, Dr. Frazier, that's been great. Uh, some really good stories there. Where can we go to read some more stories like this uh, that you've written? Uh, I'd say buy my new book, uh, Down and Out, from uh, Patagonia to Timbuktu. Uh, there's some good stories in there about my having been down and out, along with some pictures. Uh, all of it's not been bad. Sometimes I've been down and out, and it's good. And what can readers expect from the book? It's got some uh, some of the stories in there that I haven't told. Uh, obviously, you can't tell them all in uh, 90,000 words and 300 images. But uh, the company did a great job. Um, it's been defined as... Uh, dangerously infectious. Um, one uh, adventure writer that I know bought the book, and he said after reading the book, I wanted to tell my wife goodbye, kids goodbye, quit my job, and go. Uh, and at his point in life, he really can't afford to do that. Oh, Dr. Frazier, thanks once again for uh, coming on the show and talking to us about uh, the word adventure today. And we'll put links to Dr. Frazier's books and website uh, in our show notes. Coming up next, we're going to talk off-road riding skills. We've got an expert trainer for adventure bike riders just like you. First off, we head across the pond, at least for us here at Adventure Rider Radio, to the UK to talk with... Uh, Richard Jeans. Uh, I'm based in Malvern in the Midlands of the United Kingdom, and uh, I run the Triumph off-road training school. The Triumph Adventure Experience at TrailQuest Adventures. Now, this is Triumph Motorcycles' official adventure motorcycle training area. Richard, what is it that your company does, and, and how did you get started in it? I mean, you must have done some great things to get Triumph to, uh, to back you. Originally, I have a forces background, uh, and during my time <clears throat> in the forces, I, I did a lot of expedition work. When I came out... I set up TrailQuest as an expedition company uh, involved in all types of expeditions, so kayaking, mountaineering, uh, and so on. But there was a great surge of interest in motorbike adventures after the Long Way Round TV program with McGregor and Borman. Uh, and it became, t- to me, fairly obvious that although there were companies out there doing off-road rider training, a lot of that training was geared more towards enduro and race training and not specifically towards the people who wanted to go on adventures uh, and ride their bikes safely, you know, on big trips and come home again. So we uh, adapted our expedition training, uh, brought in the motorbike element, uh, and it has just gone from strength to strength. So, you know, we obviously hit a a sort of... um, uh, a, 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 an interest area which wasn't being catered for in the past. Uh, we have worked with other motorbikes in the past, but Triumph contacted us three years ago uh, and uh, set up a you know a meeting to talk about uh, training. Obviously, put us through the mill a little bit, but um, it's been a very successful relationship since then. What type of things do you do you teach when someone comes to your school? Um, what are they learning about? I mean, clearly they're going to learn riding technique, but um, when you're talking about expedition, are you talking about packing and et cetera? Uh, yeah. I mean, on the rider training side of things, we cover uh, what we regard are the essential skills for someone to safely ride a large motorbike you know, on a variety of terrains. So we cover slow speed handling skills, we cover faster handling skills, we cover 
uh, riding on a range of surfaces, so gravel, grass, sand, rock, uh, you name it, we've got it, including mud and deep ruts and so on, hills and flat, deep water crossings, shallow water crossings and so on. Um, and that is a fairly typical one-day or two-day course. But then for the, for the clients who are planning expeditions and, and looking to go on a big trip, either a Trans-Africa or Trans-America or even around the world trip, we can provide them with everything that they need. So we can talk about bike preparation, setting up the bike. Uh, we can talk to them about panniers and luggage packing, about the kit and equipment they need to take with them. We cover first aid training. We cover bike mechanical training. We cover personal security training. Uh, we cover navigation. We cover shelter building and survival skills. Um, so really anything and everything that might be in any way connected with a safe expedition. We do a one-day course, which is an introductory course, uh, and we do a lot of those uh, throughout the year. Uh, but over the last few years, we've seen an increase in, in demand for two-day training courses. But the, but the reality is that people who go beyond that, uh, are we, we run bespoke courses, so it could be anything up to ten days, uh, depending on what um, you know what they're what they're planning and where they're going and so on. Funnily enough, we had one of your countrymen over here last year, and he was here for four days. Um, so you know we did quite a lot with him, um, and we've just done one of seven days for a, a couple from Czechoslovakia. I'm glad you said countryman and didn't give me his name and, and ask if I knew him. <laughs> I can't remember his surname. It's G- I know his first name is Jim. <laughs> so um, what type of, uh, I mean, I, I pretty much know the answer to this question, I think, but I mean, I'd like you to tell us uh, what type of Triumph are you using and what sort of special preparation do you do to these bikes? Right. Well, it's interesting because obviously we use the Tiger 800 XC, um, but we, from the outset, we agreed with Triumph that we would not uh, heavily modify the bikes in any shape or form because the you know, the bike you know is capable of well capable of doing a lot of what is required of it without a massive modification. So the only things that we have on the bikes which are not standard in the UK from a dealership uh, are the short levers, which we put on because as training bikes they're going to get dropped and, and therefore the longer levers break. But in all other respects, they're standard uh, XC bikes. So they've got the bash plate, they have engine bars, they have the hand guards, they have a headlight guard, they're on knobbly tires, um, and then we fit the short levers. And then we have uh, a, a very good sponsorship arrangement with Metal Mule, who make the panniers, and we fit those uh, Metal Mule panniers as opposed to the Triumph panniers, which we dare I say it, we don't think are, are robust enough really for expedition work. So we're, we're looking at the word adventure and what it means to people and, and how people define adventure. I was recently talking with, uh, or just yesterday talking with Dr. Greg Fraser, who was uh, talking about adventure and how adventure used to mean some, some big deal, what you might call an expedition nowadays to him when he started doing his motorcycle riding and how that's changed so much because now he says you find adventure shopping out there. Um, how do you define adventure? Um... Let me take you back. I mean, as a child, I, I was influenced by the Indiana Jones films, and that's what sent me off to university, and that's why I ended up doing archaeology as my degrees. 
Um, so that, uh, the, for me, the adventure is about exploration, I suppose. Uh, it is about going off the, off the, tra- uh, the track well-trodden. It is about putting yourself into a situation where you're not necessarily sure about what the outcome might be. Um, when we do our expeditions here, uh, we say to the clients, you know, we have an aim, which is to go to a certain place, wherever that may be in the world, but it's not a guarantee that we're going to get there. And, and, the, and the answer, I suppose I'd liken it to sort of climbing Everest. Lots of climbers aim to get to the top of Everest, but, but not so many of them actually make it to the summit. Uh, and we say that you know that we're going for the challenge. We know that the journey we're making is going to be difficult. We have an aspiration, but we understand that sometimes it might be too difficult, and we might have to take another route or come back another day, you know, and do it again. Uh, I don't like uh, you know motorbike tours that are so planned rigidly that everyone knows exactly where they're going to be, you know, next day, the day after, and the day after that sort of thing. We like that element of of uh, the unknown. So I suppose, yeah, to me, adventure is traveling into the unknown. Is misadventure required for adventure? Uh, I think some of the most exciting times you have are when things go wrong. Um, We were in India last year, you know, and we had nine days of riding in the Himalayas, uh, you know, actually relatively smooth, you know, good, you know, interesting and enjoyable, but not particularly challenging. But on the last day... We come round a hairpin bend on a mountain road and find the road's been washed away, uh, and that is a challenge. Then, so yes, <laughs> we look forward to those times when things aren't going quite as they should do. And I've been caught in an avalanche in Morocco, of all places, and um, you know it's not what you're expecting, but to me, that's where the excitement comes from. And if you're going along with a, an adventure and everything is going as planned, do you look for ways to deviate from it to create some spice to the trip? Um, that's an interesting question, really. Uh, I mean, all of our expeditions have a uh, an archaeological purpose to them. So we are currently running a, a project called the Legion Project in, in uh, Morocco, where we are locating the sites of uh, lost or abandoned French Foreign Legion forts. So we know where they are because we've been using satellite imagery and records and so on to, to get the vague idea of where they might be. But we use the motorbikes to actually tie down the location precisely. Now, because there is that scientific element to that trip, we don't deviate too much from that because the actual challenge of getting to those locations is, is, is there already. Uh, and we very often have to you know, really rethink routes and so on in order to get to these sites. But that being said, you know, if we have a, a group of riders and we've got a couple of riders who are perhaps that little bit more uh, experienced off-roading, then it, you know, we have been known in the past you know, to sort of camp up overnight and then take those riders out into the desert and do something with them for a few hours just to throw in a bit of challenge for them. So this is something someone can sign up for with you to, to go on these expeditions? Uh, yes, uh, although unlike uh, a lot of expedition companies, um, we don't advertise heavily. We, 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 we get sufficient interest, if you like, through word of mouth. Uh, and one thing which has always been important in my book is getting the team dynamic right from the outset. Uh, one of the risks you, you run, I suppose, of, of simply signing up for a trip 
you know, paying your money and going, is that you're not necessarily sure you're going to get on with the people who are on the trip. You're not necessarily sure that all of those on it are of the same riding standard or have the same idea of what an adventure is, quite frankly. So we tend to vet our, our team members quite heavily, and, and we, we very often run the trips for people who've done courses with us because we then know the riders. But what we do anyway is make sure that anybody who comes uh, or applies to come on an expedition with us attends uh, several weekends of group training here in the, at our headquarters before they go on the trip so that that way everybody gets to know each other we can iron out any idiosyncrasies that might you know upset the group as time goes on uh, because the idea is that once we're out in a challenging environment, we want everybody to play a role in the expedition, all to be comfortable with what we're doing. Uh, and, as they say, when the going gets tough, get going and sort things out. <laughs> Richard, it, in your mind, is pushing your comfort zone part of what makes an adventure a great adventure? Uh, I think it is. I mean, I've discussed this with various people, I suppose, over the years, but if you're not pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, I, I don't quite see how it can be an adventure. Um, to me, that would be a tour or a holiday. Um, I, I, I like to think that we are, you know, venturing into the unknown sometimes. We're putting ourselves into a, a situation where we, we have an outcome that we want, a desired outcome, but we, we might not achieve it. It's the same with destinations. Um, we were in Ethiopia in 2012, and that's not a country well visited, certainly by people from the UK. Uh, and people in the UK have a particular perception about that country and what it's like and so on. Um, and I had a lot of clients, you know, quite nervous about going there, including one who dropped out a week before we went. But what a shame, because he missed a fantastic expedition, you know. And, and uh, it was, it was, we always thought afterwards, yeah, what a, you know, he should have gone on that and done it, because... He missed a great experience. Do you have any other stories uh, in the top of your mind that um, started out uh, as an adventure and it's the misadventure that really made it to be a memorable experience? Um, yes. Well, I mean, we've, we've had all sorts, really. We've been in Iceland uh, and we've had a, a rider taken ill um, and, and we've had to sort of deal with that and, and get their bike back from the centre of Iceland, which was you know, an interesting experience. Uh, we've had situations uh, in Morocco uh, last year where we, in March last year, uh, the weather was unexpectedly cold uh, and our, our route was completely blocked by snow. And uh, we had to think fairly long and hard about how to deal with that because it was a case of either turn around and go back about 300 miles or work our way through the avalanche belt and, and get ourselves, you know, onto the route we wanted to go on. So, yeah, those sort of little things happen all the time. I've, done, I've, I've had and dealt with bike mechanical problems, the usual sort of flat tires or, you know, bash bikes and so on. And all of those things, when you look back on it, certainly our clients, you know, they become the sort of highlight of the trip, really. Um, it's it's one of those things that I liked. Someone said to me uh, a few years ago, um, they they said, uh, you know, we like riding with you guys, because there were, there were three Trail Quest team on this trip. Uh, again, we were in, in Morocco, uh, and things started to go a bit 
bit wrong. Uh, and they said to us afterwards, they said that for us was when the adventure really started. And they said it was also brilliant to see how you guys, who had been so light-hearted and, and, and having a laugh and a joke for the previous week or two, suddenly reverted to a much more serious mode in order to deal with the situation, to get everybody home safely. Uh, and we felt very reassured that we were in the hands of professional you know, adventurers at that point rather than... Uh, people who are sort of light-hearted and not taking it all that seriously. Uh, in that thought, do you think in today's world it's better to go off on an adventure by yourself or with a group of people that you know that you can travel with? It, again, that is, that is something that we, we talk about a lot here. Uh, and, and when we talk to our clients, we, talk, you know, we, we have a long discussion about this. I, uh, I suppose motorcyclists very often are people who like to be on their own and i fully understand that and i and i and i have ridden myself on my own to various places but when you're putting yourself on the edge in difficult situations and so on it, it is it is very reassuring and helpful to have somebody with you and we had a very interesting example of that last year we were doing a training course for a chap with a, one of the larger bmws the 1200 gs adventure which was about the limit that he could handle, actually, and it was quite big for him. Uh, and he was planning a trip to South America, and we did the last couple of days training with his bike fully loaded, so all his panniers were on and all his kit and everything else. Uh, and we went to our remote training area, which we have, uh, which is quite challenging, and he came off. He wasn't hurt. Uh, his bike wasn't damaged, but he was completely trapped under his bike. Uh, and the lesson he learned from that was simply solo traveling has its problems because if we hadn't been there to help him he would have been stuck under that bike until the next person came along which in that particular area might have been a week so he you know there's no way he would have lifted the bike by himself he had to have help now riding in a pair or in a three or a four you've got immediately you've got company you've got someone to help you when things go wrong you've got somebody to apply a different perspective to a situation and so on so I suppose, uh, much as I think solo riding is, is great fun, uh, we often say to our clients who are considering it, have a think. Just think through some of the issues that you might come across and, and, and you might be better off finding a companion to go with you. Uh, Richard, I know what a, lot, a lot of what you do is um, uh, a training for riding technique, and I understand you have a 1,000-acre uh, private area that you ride in. Yeah. With techniques, with adventure bikes in mind, what are a few riding techniques that you could tell us that riders could go and practice on their own, things that would hone their skills or improve their skills? We feel that the, the rider has to be the complete master of their bike. Uh, and by that, we mean they are so comfortable with it and with riding it that they are at one with it. So the first thing I would say to anybody is when they've got their bike, ride it and ride it and ride it as much as possible, because the more you ride, the better you, you get. You shouldn't really be thinking about the bike at all when you're riding. You should be thinking about the route ahead and looking ahead for the problems. And the bike should be like just there as part of you. Now, the second thing which we spend a lot of time teaching riders because we have just found that they're not very good at it is slow speed bike control. Uh, we would require our clients to ride their Triumph 800 uh, around a trail at, at, a, at four miles an hour. 
uh, and maintain that speed, standing up, sitting down, whatever, because they have to be able to negotiate obstacles and, and so on uh, with complete control of the bike. Most problems with motorbikes come from speed. Too much speed leads to too heavy braking, that leads to people falling off. But if they can go into a situation and into a technical area and control the bike slowly, they will do well. So we, that is the, the first priority on our training courses. And once somebody has mastered that, then we move them on to the next stage and the next stage. Uh, we, are, we want riders to ride on a variety of surfaces. And we've had exactly the situation today, actually. I've just finished the course today um, you know, with a, a rider, years and years and years of road riding experience, just terrified of steep gravel slopes. Couldn't do it. Could not do it. Uh, and it's all in the mind, really. But um, So we would say that the next thing we want people to do is to master ascending and descending steep slopes on a variety of surfaces. Because, again, I don't know about in your country, but in this country, in the UK, that isn't even covered in the basic bike riding test. So, therefore, we have you know qualified riders riding around the UK who have never actually done a steep hill start or a hill stop. Uh, and the first time they do it is when they come to us, uh, and they find that it's very difficult. So that's something else that we work on. And then the third thing which we spend a lot of time on is controlling speed on an ascent, because a lot of riders, you know, they, they sort of think, well, it's a steep hill, so I just open the throttle up and put the bike up as fast as possible, which is fine. It's, it's a technique. But what they're forgetting is at the top of the hill, they might come to a sudden, you know, problem. It could be a drop-off, it could be a fence, it could be a tree line or whatever it is. So we, we concentrate heavily on a controlled ascent, but also the ability to slow the bike down very quickly without applying the brakes and without, you know, skidding the bike and so on. Now, if we feel that if somebody can master those sort of three skills uh, during the day with us, then we feel that we've got the makings of a good adventure rider, and then we can de we can develop other skills as time goes on after that. How about uh, mud? Mud is one of the, the those things that you seem to dread as a bike rider going along. You see the, the road starts to get muddy, and you have the ruts to deal with. Yep. Um, what are some tips for riding mud? Um, it's interesting you say that. I mean, here today, uh, it's baking hot, and all our mud has dried up. So we were almost going to get some water barriers out and <laughs> make it all wet again. Um, but that being said, most of the year here, it is muddy, so we, we are riding it all the time at, at Trail Quest. Um, as a rule of thumb, uh, uh, we, I mean, first of all, we are very, we try very hard to have a sort of non-fall uh, environment. So we don't like our class to fall off too much if we can avoid it because it puts them off. So when we come to ruts, uh, our basic rule of thumb is if the ruts uh, or the track you're riding is wet, then we put the bikes into the ruts, ride the rut as if you are riding it like a tram line. Do not use your throttle to accelerate the bike, but let the bike roll under its own momentum. Uh, and do not be afraid to put your feet down to stabilize the bike and stop it falling over. As we say to our clients, there are two weak links in a bike expedition. One, the rider, because as humans we break quite easily. Two, the bike. If you drop the bike too many times, you will eventually break it, and therefore you've lost your lifeline, if you like, your, your route home. So we would ride in the rut, bike at, at uh, uh, riding at its own default speed, which for the uh, Tiger 800s is about 8 to 10 miles an hour. 
we control our speed with the clutch uh, and we try to avoid braking as much as possible. If the rutted track is dry, then we will ride the center line and just miss the ruts out completely because we can ride that center line generally fairly happily uh, without any risk of sliding into it. But, but we are putting our clients through, through heavily rutted trails all the time because, as, as you're probably aware, you know, in most parts of the world, that's what you come across. When you're saying uh, riding the ruts when they're muddy and staying in them, are you talking about standing or sitting? depends on the confidence of the rider. We start the riders off sitting down. Uh, and, and the reason we do that is because we have a lot of our sort of clients, uh, they're very new to the adventure riding game. So what they've done is they've seen the TV programs, they've read the magazine articles, looked at all the pictures and so on, and they've seen riders standing up in those. So therefore, they assume that that is the best way of doing it. And of course, because they're not experienced, they fall off. So therefore, we start them off by sitting down and using their legs to balance themselves and keep the bike upright and work their way through. As a rider gets more confident, um, then of course, standing up will actually make the, the, it a bit easier for them and help them through it. But it all depends on the conditions at the time, how deep the ruts are, how wide they are, how deep the water is, uh, size of bike and so on. Uh, at the end of the game, our mission at TrailQuest is to get our clients from the start point of their trip to the finish point of their trip without damaging themselves or their bikes. And if we achieve that, then we are, you know, we, we are very happy. And um, you know, it doesn't matter what technique they use, provided it doesn't, you know, they don't fall off. So I have one other situation I wanted to ask you about, and that's of course water crossing. Depends on the uh, conditions. I mean, I've ridden uh, bikes in Iceland where there are no bridges. You know, everything is forded. Uh, we've ridden them you know, in Africa after a heavy rainfall and so on. Um, our, our, what we teach here, our technique to a client is to, you know, as you approach a water crossing, uh, as a matter of course, you stop, you walk forward, and you assess the river or the water, whatever it is. You're looking at the depth of the river. You're looking at the width that you've got to cross. You're looking, if it's a, a flowing uh, river, you're looking at the current and the speed of the current. I mean, I was in Iceland in 2006. Uh, an Italian rider was washed away completely uh, crossing a river, um, which we then crossed quite successfully about an hour later, you know, because we walked our bikes across whereas he tried to ride it. But he, he, he miscalculated the flow of the current. We would also be assessing the exit point and entry points because, you know, sometimes an easier route might be a couple of hundred meters left or right of the actual road uh, because the roads get well worn and, you know, animal traffic and vehicle traffic and so on can wear it out. Whereas just up and down the stream, you might find an easier crossing point. Uh, if necessary, we walk the whole thing first. We're looking for depth. We're looking for uh, algae on the rocks beneath the water. We're looking for where rocks have been washed away. Uh, we would, in uh, if we assess the situation to be quite tricky, we would probably rig up a safety line. You know, which would which would uh, the rope would indicate the sort of direct and safest point to cross. Uh, and we have in the past been known to use carabiners and to actually put, you know, connect the rider to the safety rope, so even if the bike gets washed away, they won't be washed away. 
you have to take everything you know uh, on its merits when you get to it. But we would never ride straight through water without checking it first. Yeah, oh, that's great information. Now, you know, as as you know, Richard, from looking around at any forums, the tire issue goes on forever. Yeah. But um, one thing I was interested in talking a bit about was, and this is sort of a, derived from my own theory. I, I run knobby tires almost all the time, and my yeah. theory is that I want the most traction for those times when I have the least traction available. And I'm talking. Yeah. Uh, in dirt or off-road situations. What is your thought process for the tire type that you run on an adventure? Um, well, we run on Metzler Tourances uh, here, but I've also used Continentals uh, in the past, the uh, Continental G2, which is a good compound and hard-wearing. Um, I mean, I haven't ridden on road tires for about 15 years, so uh, I, I have a a feeling that, you know, like you, that the knobbly tyre is, is the most useful for what I'm doing. Uh, I can ride a knobbly tyre on tarmac, but I can't necessarily ride a road tyre off-road. So it's as simple as that to me. Uh, but one thing we do stress to our clients uh, is, you know, it doesn't matter what the tyres you've got on your bike, it, it, the weakest link is always the rider. The skill of the rider is, is, is the overriding thing. Uh, because you can be the worst rider in the world and put all the gizmos on your bike, and it won't make you any better rider. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's as simple as that. Uh, but we use knobby tires on all our bikes all the time. Um, occasionally, we have clients who come to us with um, sort of dual-purpose tires on sort of heavily treaded road tires, and they're okay in the dry uh, and on gravel and so on, but they're, they're next to useless in wet mud. Well, there's some great riding tips for us adventure riders. The one I really like there is getting to know your bike and spending a lot of time riding and just getting a, a feel for your bike. And I think that is an excellent, excellent advice. You can find out more about the Triumph Adventure Experience at TrailQuest Adventures by visiting their website, which is www.trailquestadventure.com. And uh, you can also go to our website and check the show links, and there'll be a link to that website as well. And I want to thank you, the listener, for spending the time listening to this, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we did making it. And please tell your friends, pass it around, send the links, visit the website, and pass our links around. Get the show out there, get more people listening to it. If you're an advertiser, send us an email. We'd love to talk to you. Take care, enjoy, ride safe. And this is Adventure Rider Radio. This is Richard Dreams uh, from Trail Quest, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
This is Dr. Gregory W. Frazier, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.